Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today is the anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar. Each year, we bring you something relevant to that extraordinary event in 1805 when Nelson's fleet defeated a combined force of French and Spanish ships off Cape Trafalgar in the battle in which Nelson lost his life. Over three years, we've brought you podcasts on a variety of aspects of Nelson, the ships and the battle. And if you have a particular interest in HMS Victory, I would urge you to listen to our three-part tour of HMS Victory, in which we explore the ship from the bottom up. It even includes a little look at HMS Victory's visitor book from her time as a historic ship, which I found particularly fascinating, as various members of royalty and global dignitaries have been brought to Victory over the years, and they all signed to say that they had been there. I have seen this ship. Today we are exploring the idea that is, I think, at the heart of the Trafalgar story, and that is the notion of heroic death. To find out more, I spoke with the excellent Dan O'Brien, visiting research fellow at the Centre for Death and Society at the University of Bath. His Twitter account, though I need to now call it X, is fabulous. Please follow him and see what macabre stuff he is up to at Dr. Dan underscore O. Today, Dan is here to help us understand exactly what was going on in the way that death was perceived at the Royal Navy in the Age of Sail, and in particular how a naval officer could end up with a state funeral with no parallel. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is the slightly sinister Dan. Dan, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so heroic death, uh, what exactly is heroism? Should we start with that? Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting question because I think it's it's kind of at the core of what we're, we're talking about today, the idea that dying, behaving in a particular way at a particular time um, can be given positive qualities by people, sometimes during the event, but often after the event. And I, th- I think it's interesting that from the examples that I've seen, from things I've encountered, heroism seems to embody doing things for more than yourself, for others maybe, or for your nation, 
or for some greater cause. The idea that some seemingly maybe rather disorderly things that you might do might have some greater purpose that you're focusing on at the time. Um, the sense maybe that whilst you're, whether on land or at sea, um, engaged in something which might seem quite scary or terrifying or completely unexpected, that actually your mind is still functioning with a greater purpose and a greater good in mind. Mm. I like this idea of um, the bigger purpose being important. It's certainly important to historians Mm. and was clearly important to the people at the time. But do you reckon they actually thought about the nature of what the bigger purpose was? So, for example, we might be quite cynical and say, well, actually, hang on, the greater purpose here is um, is is uh, to um, expand the British Empire with mm. all of the nastiness that 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 entails. Do you think there was some kind of awareness of what was going on? I think it's quite curious because I, I often think when we when we try to imagine the motives of others, there's always this risk that there could be something quite different going on in someone else's mind. That we you know we as historians might kind of overlay these meanings and purposes on people's behaviour. And actually, they might have slightly more self-centred motives. They might be caught in a moment. They might see maybe an initial goal ahead of them, something that they need to achieve or want to achieve. Um, and there may be lurking in the distance somewhere, there might be some greater meaning to their actions. Um, I think it's also interesting because sometimes when we have people's accounts of things, you tend to find that people will offer their own maybe slightly more colourful interpretation of what they were doing at the time. And I think as historians, you, you end up caught between these competing narratives, particularly when heroism's involved, of who was doing what and why and what maybe they did that was important that day or in that particular instance that maybe at the time wasn't so, so pressingly important. No, it's interesting, isn't it? Certainly when you're thinking about people like Nelson, who mm. without any doubt wanted to be a hero, mm. he had a, he had some personal ambition going on and realised that there was a way of doing it by um, um, being brave for the nation. So I think it must be very difficult as a historian to balance personal ambition with um, what heroism is supposedly all about, i.e. non-personal ambition. Mm. And also there's, yeah. there seems to be this very interesting kind of gulf, a very sort of narrow gulf, but a very deep one, between what we might consider acts of recklessness and acts of heroism. And it's quite <laughs> interesting great. that the outcome can either push you into some sort of delightful, heroic deed, or on the other hand, something hideously reckless that everyone afterwards kind of moralises about the terribleness of it and how misguided was this. And Yeah. That's fascinating. I was um, literally just reading a book about the Battle of Kahima. In, um, it was fought in Burma in 1944. And my grandfather was at it and he won the military cross there. And he did something which was um, uh, well, extremely reckless, but <laughs> managed to survive. And it had a, uh, a, a good result. But it's interesting. There was another guy, I forget his name now, but he won the Victoria Cross. And the, the sense of complete recklessness with which he behaved mm. is what actually uh, pervades through the through the sources um and it doesn't just because someone's done something and was successful at it doesn't necessarily mean it was a militarily wise idea mm. anyway um so more broadly in terms of how heroic death how is individual or, or mass death transformed by ideas of heroism well i think what it i think i guess what it most importantly does is it takes something which can be quite shocking or distressing both for the individual but potentially also for the state. Um, and it reframes it in a way that 
gives it a sense of positive meaning that people can build on. So when you have, for example, a, a, a disastrous occasion, something that goes completely wrong, from the perspective of individuals outside of this, we could look at this and say, well, this exemplifies all the, the problems that we have, all the numerous shortcomings that we um, that we have. It could represent weakness. It could represent a failure of hierarchy or commands. Um, so it can be quite dangerous. Um, but by framing the events within this as part of some sort of heroic narrative, you can repurpose these horrible instances, these slightly challenging moments into something that not only improves upon the potentially rather negative reading of what's happened, but also gives people something to take on from that, gives something a foundation to build, if you will. Um, hmm. What do heroic deaths tell us about those involved or the nation that they represent? I think the point here is that if you look at heroic deaths, there is it, it's it's a key to unlocking all sorts of really interesting history if you look at the broader mm. context of what's going on. I think it's really interesting because when we when we have a, a heroic death, when we have an individual who dies in circumstances that might be perceived as being very tragic, the notion that they were acting with this greater purpose or that their qualities in that moment when faced by their own death um, represent the qualities of a nation, of a people, um, that can be quite a, a rousing idea and a rousing concept. And it's interesting because it, it's something we see throughout people's experiences of death, um, that at that moment of death, at that moment when you as the individual know that you are quite possibly going to die, um, that you might not get out of the situation, the manner with which you face that moment and the way that you choose to deal with that, that fact and, and that possibility for both yourself and those around you is is really kind of heavily written about people like to describe those moments of death and those instances where people are very close to the end and they usually if it's a positive experience they they do something worthwhile they maybe um give instructions or give ideas um that they've had uh, they maybe share knowledge um in some instances um, that they have been either kind of exposed to or that they themselves have kind of been given by some kind of supernatural being. Um, so it's a really interesting moment because it kind of, it's it's an instance where certainly in readings of good deaths, the individual faced with death is kind of elevated to this, this other level. And certainly in those accounts of heroic deaths, that's the moment where an individual who maybe has been severely mortally wounded realizes their predicament and chooses to take control of that moment. Um, so from disorder and from kind of the most ultimate form of disorder um, comes control and purpose. Hmm. It's obviously partially to do with the fact that in the age of sale, there were numerous ways in which life could suddenly be ended by hmm. you know enemy action or by accidents on board. Is it, um, is this, Sort of sense of heroic death as we see really um, around Nelson. Do you think that is unique to the Age of Sail, or at least it's presented in a unique way? I think in the Age of Sail, it's it's particularly interesting because you have so many instances where both those in kind of low and high society may find themselves confronted um, with either their own death or the deaths of others around them. Um, 
I think it's it's something that within military conflict at sea is probably fairly constant. Um, it's described very interestingly during the age of sail, particularly from a British perspective, because we have this sense of the, you know, the tar and Jack Tar going out there on the sea, fighting, embodying all these seemingly British principles of heroism and bravery, um, the determination to keep struggling against all different kinds of adversity, whether they be environmental or in the form of the enemy action that they they so often face. Um, So there is a real sense maybe that from the perspective of people living in 18th century England, that here at the sea, in this realm beyond the shores of the nation, we have a test of the nation's character. And I suppose probably certainly from from my experiences of of kind of reading different accounts and seeing the kind of different visual culture which emerges from the sea we have a sense that these these moments at sea these moments of peril are tests of the nation's character um, mm. as embodied by those who either succeed or indeed those who fail you know those who kind of embody the the kind of the negative outcome that might happen if we don't behave heroically at sea yeah um it's it's fascinating stuff. It makes me wonder whether people considered a heroic death in battle to be different to a heroic death in shipwreck. Is mm. there uh, because in one of them you've got another nation, probably the French, and in another one you don't. You have nature. You're mm. fighting nature. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I I think the the experience of shipwreck um, for those who for those who survive and for those who perish is really quite interesting because a shipwreck is one of these kind of existential challenges that mm. within the kind of narratives that form around shipwrecks has a a really interesting structure where the individual is challenged. They are, I suppose, in many ways, quite literally confronted by their own predicament. Um, they are alone. They rely only upon themselves, and as people on board a vessel that's being maybe torn apart or tossed around, the hierarchy on board that ship is being challenged. You know, the, the, the God, the nature, the kind of the environment all around them is, is challenging those qualities, which exemplify their, their Britishness at that time. And I think it is, it's really interesting to encounter stories of, of shipwreck where, whether they're fictional or they are kind of slightly colourful accounts of things that really happened. Um, you have a keen sense that these individuals are being tested as individuals and also as a crew. Um, sometimes they fail. You know, sometimes that order breaks down under the, the immense challenge of the sea. Um, they can't maintain their temerity. They can't maintain the bonds that keep them together. But also at the same time, you have those who succeed in situations where maybe the whole ship is lost or a good number of the crew are lost or... Um, you know, for example, in the case of the Hallswell, you know, everything just kind of starts to come to pieces over time. And there's one challenge after the next. And there there's a really interesting sense that, you know, the, the crew are challenged. Some of them break down, some of them survive, others lose their lives kind of continuing their escape. So it becomes like a many layered challenge of the individual. Whereas I suppose in conflict, it's a more straightforward challenge. You know, there you have a sense that there is um, a limit but there's also a sort of cause and there's a human cause and effect. You know, you can always blame individuals for failures in enemy action. But with shipwrecks, you know, it's it's the uncontrollable power of the sea that you're up against. And it's a very 
it, it's a challenge on many different levels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to thinking about Nelson and um, other heroic deaths in battle. How were heroic deaths commemorated? So the, the commemoration of heroic deaths is really interesting because it, it's one of these areas where as, as someone who frequents a lot of churches, um, I'm often confronted by these really quite spectacular memorials to individuals who may or may not be on site, who may or may not be present at the time. Um, quite often when these individuals, even people of high standing, die at sea, they're thrown overboard and that's kind of the end of their body. So there's a need to memorialise them in some meaningful way. And those memorials which result um, could be fantastic accounts of both the individuals and also the circumstances in which they died. Um, and, you know, just thinking of, of London as a sole example, Westminster Abbey, you've got the, the Cornwall Memorial, and the Cornwall Memorial remembers um, Cornwall who died at the Battle of Toulon. And it, it's a fantastic piece of kind of memorial. It, you know, it's, it's on many different levels. At the centre of it, you have these two wonderful caverns one cavern contains the inscription that tells you a little about the individual and the manner by which he died. Um, rather gruesomely, he lost both legs to mm. some chain shots. So he he was in a rather grave situation almost immediately with, with very little chance um, of doing anything about his predicament. You know, he's pretty much gravely wounded from the outset. And below you have this rather almost sanitised view of the Battle of Toulon, you know, with vessels kind of engaging each other um, and it's, it's to my mind, it's, it's a really interesting way of, of capturing both the individual and their own personal narrative, their own story, um, and also the circumstances by which they died, which often, in the case of, of naval encounters, would be quite distant from the people at the time. You know? And this is, as a monument, this is quite interesting because it's, it's one of the first ones to be um, funded by Parliament. So... Here, there's a sense that you know this individual needs to be memorialised by the state at, at public expense, and just as a structure, I think it's it's not alone. There are other examples um, within Westminster Abbey. There's a couple of good ones in St Paul's as well, where you have that same sort of structure of trying to capture the individual. Um, now, sometimes that's purely by an inscription. Often there's going to be a, like a cameo depicting the, the individual in profile. Sometimes if you're very lucky, there's like a fully reclining effigy. Um, Clancy's shovel, I believe, has like a sort of lovely effigy of him lying down on his monument, uh, relaxing. And in addition to that, you also have these reminders of the, the way by which this individual lived and died. You know, there's often... Um, examples of cannons, shots, sometimes rudders, masts, um, and then at the same time, depictions of conflict at sea. Um, there's a really good one down at the very end of, of Westminster Abbey, sometimes behind hoardings, but it's um, it's Montagues. And Montagues has these kind of two giant lions on either side, so it's very strong figurative imagery, very kind of tied to the idea of the nation and the, the powerful lion. Montague kind of stands on this, this enormous plinth, and behind him sit two sailors kind of mournfully with their heads down it's it so it kind of it, it stages your your approach to it you know on the one hand he stands over you he's a like an exemplar that you must follow um there are reminders of you know who he serves he serves the british state but at the back you have these mournful figures and they're kind of informing you if you like of how you should approach this you know this is not something to be kind of enjoyed this is something to be mourned mm. 
And then immediately in front of you, as you stand before Montague, you have this, this scene, this naval encounter. Um, and it, it's just really interesting because on so many different levels, it's confronting you with the man, the figurative imagery of the state that he serves, and then also the manner by which he died. Um, and that's that's true of a lot of kind of 18th century, kind of early 19th century um, memorials to particularly officers who've died in in naval conflict. This sense that they kind of follow a tra- you know a tradition and a style that once one has had a particular thing, the other wants it should be memorialized in the same way. Um, and I guess it informs a sort of correctness on the part of the state about how we must memorialize these individuals. What's the appropriate way? Which way informs the public's behavior as much as you know, just telling it, giving an account of the individual? Um, Do you think that what's appropriate, the, the appropriate way of doing it changed over time? I think there's there's definitely a shift where you kind of, you over time you move from um, more traditional kind of stacked memorials um, of the examples. You, there are a couple of examples of naval captains um, and sailors from usually the kind of the, the early 1700s, very late 1600s, um, which tend to follow um, more of a traditional style with the reclining effigy. So they, they're kind of they're following um, wider trends at the time. And over time, we start to see these these really kind of vivid like depictions of of nautical encounters, um, battles between ships, maybe ships at sea um, in full sail. And I suppose it maybe it, it kind of speaks to that that desire to to see these these moments of heroism and to from a, a society that's kind of aware of its navy and is aware of its navy's deeds, and also from from I guess a state that wants to kind of promote itself as being a supreme naval power, this desire that maybe you have to kind of show people what happens at sea. You have to provide this account, maybe a preferred reading, if you will, of what naval encounters look like and how they represent a kind of order. Um, because these are mm. always very orderly, or well, for the most part, they're very orderly visions of battle at sea. Um, you know, which is completely chaotic. It's, yeah, which is because <laughs> when you, you read the accounts and you, you reflect upon what you're, what you're seeing there, you think well, it's a very kind of tidy, very clean image of, <laughs> of naval conflict. Um, but it's, it's also wonderfully satisfying at the same time, because as, as readers of these items, you know, we, we look upon them, we see very pleasing images of, you know, the, the power of the nation at sea. Um, and it, it is interesting because there's, there's another good example. Um, um, Peter Parker's son, uh, it's in St. Margaret's next to Westminster Abbey, and he, he died in an encounter on land. He, he staged a kind of um, a landing. He was killed at the Battle of Cork's Field um, in 1814. And his depiction is quite interesting because it, it shows him in that, mo- in that very mortal moment where he's kind of supported by the men around him. There are figures behind him firing um, into the distance. So it, it gives a little sense of the chaos that surrounds his death. Um, but even at that, it's kind of a managed, it's very clean. You know, when we think of the kind of the damage that the bodies would accrue um, in, in naval conflict, this is a very clean white marble image. Um, and I think that, that that's probably quite interesting too. When you think about the manner in which some of these people died, um, so Harvey, for example, you know, his his kind of monument, again, it's it's a little cameo of him. It's his head in profile. 
it ignores the fact that this is an individual who sustained three very grievous wounds in the battle. Um, and it's essentially, by the time he dies, he's kind of missing a hand, there's a chunk missing from his back. It's very... Um, it's a very sanitized vision. I suppose we can we can understand as an audience, you know, why why that would be. Um, but I, I just I find it interesting that you know, there's monuments on land give such a sense of a propriety and order to naval conflict. Um, and I suppose in many ways that's because that's what you know, as a state, you want to promote. You want to promote the sense that there are these encounters at sea, but triumph is guaranteed by the qualities that make make us what we are um Mm. so it lacks some of the uncertainty yeah fascinating hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Stuff. Well, let's talk about Nelson quickly. Yes. Um, how... It's a, it's a really interesting and important question, this, because no one really answer, asks it, I don't think. How is Nelson's death heroic? Well, it's a, it's a very interesting question because I, I was confronted with this myself when I was trying to explain this um, to a family member. And it was, I was kind of, you know, I'm going to talk about heroic deaths in Nelson. Well, Nelson was kind of killed by surprise. So, the, you know, he, he's shot by a sniper, falls to the ground, I guess in many ways, he's not doing anything particularly dramatic at the time. He's not giving commands. He's kind of moving around on the quarter deck. And I suppose what makes Nelson's death heroic... Mm, He's shot shot in the back by someone he Mm. can't see. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's the ultimate kind of going out, just going out by surprise where. And I think, you know, it's true, in many ways, it's true of a lot of the the kind of the the deaths at at Trafalgar. You know, when you have... um, you have Duff, for example. Duff is just kind of walks out onto deck, decapitated by a cannonball. Um, but I guess what's interesting with um, with Nelson is that this period of time where he's taken below provides an opportunity for people afterwards to to give his death a little more purpose, maybe to frame it in a particular way, to maybe give him more of a connection to the events that are going on that he is completely detached from in many ways. Um, and I suppose in many ways that that then starts this process by which Nelson's demise um, is something that he actually kind of participates in, 
even if in the very flimsiest of ways, you know, as someone who is who is gravely wounded, who realizes his predicament, um, and I suppose bears that predicament quite heroically in many ways. He doesn't, from the accounts that we have, he doesn't kind of bear it with you know with any kind of ill graces. He doesn't labour in pain, and I think it's it's interesting that these the visions of those individuals who like Nelson who don't die immediately, who, but who kind of labour on for a short time and then pass into death, are opportunities for people to kind of establish how their character informs their response to, to predicaments, which I guess is what you know, typifies heroism, you know, the sense that when Nelson is faced by his imminent end and the uncertainty that surrounds him, he maintains his confidence in those around him. Um, such a big part of the story is what happens between between being shot and dying, and it mm. would have been very different had he been shot in shot in the head and died instantly. Yes. Um, yeah. What about the deaths of other officers in in uh, around Nelson at Trafalgar? Yes. Well, this this is the, the my kind of I've always found the story of Duff quite interesting because you know Duff is is a figure who he's a captain. He goes, you know, he's serving on I believe Mars, and he enters the deck and he's decapitated. And it, it, to my mind, it kind of embodies the the wildness of of death in naval conflict. That you can have an individual who is in charge of so many people, who is kind of going about his you know his role, who's kind of performing his role, and then is just instantly killed. And if anything, quite by the standards of people living on land, is quite horrendously killed as well. You know, as you you said, the kind of the sense that a good death although not always, should embody some degree of talking to people, kind of engaging and interacting with them in those moments before death. And obviously with Duff, you know, shorn of his head, there's there's nothing for him to do. He can't speak to people. Um, he's unable to, to kind of communicate to those around him. And I think it's it's really interesting because, you know, when you see how Duff's death is framed, you know, the idea that he's then put overboard with his other crew members who've died. He's united with his crew. He becomes a man of his people again. So there we have, if you like, a, a, an account of a, a horrendous death, um, a death which deprives the individual of lots of their opportunities to secure the things that people would have seen as being respectable and proper on land. Um, but it's given that sense of purpose because here, a man who served with his men is buried with his men in the sea. Um, similarly with, with Cook, who's on the, the Bellerophon, you know, Cook is the scene, um, in which he dies is even more chaotic. You know, they've engaged this friendship there. There are individuals kind of fighting each other on the deck. Um, it's, again, it's that sort of chaos that results from, from naval conflict at sea. There are boarding parties fighting and defending. And in amidst all of this, he's found with two musket shots to the chest, you know, which again is a very final wound and the individual um Cumbia, i believe who who finds him um finds him dead you know and he hears of his last words he hears that you know that cook unlike duff was able to give these last words um and it, it's just really it both of them are really interesting because you know when you go to st paul's now duff's memorial is is there as you approach nelson's tomb and you know it's just it's interesting that these individuals have been brought back together, you know, within this kind of memorial narrative of Trafalgar, um, that these three individuals who died in 
different but very um, horrendous circumstances are given a sense of purpose and also permanence as well. You know, they have a, through these monuments, their stories, their interrelation have a sense of um, a permanence which kind of outlasts the story or the individual. You know, there are lots of people who will go down to that space and we'll see um, these kind of rather spectacular memorials um, to those individuals. Um, you know, Cooks has got these kind of putties sat on it. One's got like a helmet on his head. Um, and then, you know, Duff's is even more, it's kind of even more poignant because it kind of frames that sense of, of mournfulness. You have a like a giant depiction of, of a tomb with a mournful figure quite literally directing us how to behave, mourning on this tomb and the Britannia standing over it. So a sense that these these men are kind of deserving of, of similar praise to Nelson. Um, maybe not equal praise, but kind of similar praise at the same time. <laughs> praise enough, praise <laughs> enough. Uh, what does Nelson's funeral say about, about him in particular mm. and, and the country that he served? I think Nelson's funeral, I kind of, I've always had this kind of fascination. Nelson's funeral is one of the ways that I actually got into death history. And so it's kind of, it's, it's all, I've always had this odd connection with it. And I think a lot of that connection stems from the fact that Nelson's funeral was... Um, was just absurdly grand. And that grandness kind of speaks to the importance of the individual at its centre. Um, you know, there's a sense that Nelson's funeral is the kind of spectacle that is both traditional, um, you know, being directed by the College of Arms, who would traditionally do the royal funerals, the funerals of the aristocracy, um, and also quite contemporary at the same time. It involves these elements of... Um, 18th century Britain at sea. You know, there are members of um, the Greenwich Hospital there, the pensioners. Um, there are individuals from Victory who are present. Now, there are lots of reminders of this state that Nelson served. And I think it's quite interesting because when we think about Nelson's place in this funeral, you know, he is at the very heart of all of these different stages that comprise essentially the funeral week, if you will. Um, he lies in state at Greenwich, um, and that's an immensely popular occasion. You know, if we think to recent examples, it has, you know, I guess some similarities with people queuing for the Queen. It's slightly more disordered than people queuing for the Queen because there's lots of, you know, hubbub. People want to see Nelson's coffin. Um, and from that point onwards, his coffin becomes this, this locus point. You know, his coffin becomes almost an avatar for the man within. You know, we have a sense that this is a, and people write and read about it a lot at the time, that this is this four-shelled construction. And that at the core of it, we have Nelson lying in a coffin made from the wood of the mainmast of the Orient, you know, a ship from the Battle of the Nile. Um, so it's Nelson's story and himself all in one kind of very tiny collected space. And that travels through the centre of London. It travels from Greenwich down the Thames to Whitehall, past all the people on the riverside. Um, being consumed by as many people as you could possibly imagine as well, um, which is, is really interesting because the more people that you expose this funeral to, the greater the potential for unpredictable elements, things that might happen which you might not have control over. You know, the more mm -hmm. random people that are watching it, the more unexpected things that might happen. Um, when it gets to Whitehall, it waits at the Admiralty overnight. And at that point, it's loaded onto this spectacular funeral car, which people might have seen pictures of before. It's this enormous construction um, shaped like the victory. 
and there on the quarter deck, you know, where Nelson was was so fatally wounded, rests his coffin. And lots of really conscious efforts were made to provide people with an unadulterated view of this coffin as well, that kind of completely unblocked by anything. The pole was taken off and placed alongside. There were meant to be other figures riding on board, but they were taken away so that people would have this direct view of the coffin, um, kind of Nelson in object form as it travelled through the city. And I think it's it's really interesting when we think about Nelson's position in the country that then it begins this really lengthy journey with enormous, you know, three-hour-long funeral procession through the city. And in doing so, goes through essentially a microcosm of Britain at the time. You know, at street level, we have these kind of the, the regular public gathered in their, their tens of thousands. In windows above, we have um, slightly more affluent people who've managed to kind of pay for a room uh, on the route, you know, keeps them away from the regular folk, um, but also affords them a fantastic view at the same time, places them quite significantly higher than their peers. Um, and what we see there is essentially a, a funeral procession that represents the state that Nelson served. You know, it's, it's kind of a microcosm of, of um, the military, the private members of the public in their morning coaches, and then around him, the morning party, members of the Navy themselves. And within that, we have other members of the Victory's party. And we also have some Greenwich pensioners as well. So reminders of the those who've served in the Navy, either at Trafalgar or in similar conflicts, those who maybe have been injured in those conflicts. And again, at the core of this, we, we have Nelson's body kind of travelling, this kind of inert object, travelling through, becoming the focus of everyone's attention. And I think it's really interesting because Nelson obviously is the centre of everyone's focus. But people seem equally interested in the, the members of the victory, you know, these surviving members. And it, as the funeral continues, these victory crew members, who are by no means, you know, the full party of the people who would have been on board victory. They're a very selected company of individuals um, who've been chosen. first, Curated. To, it's, it's literally kind of like selected and then sent to a series of very specific experiences along the way. Um, you know, they go to Greenwich, they, they have like a private audience with the coffin, which is, uh, again, a very touching moment that's described in great detail. They march in the funeral procession, they display uh, the victory standard with all of its kind of marks of the battle, with blood from the soldiers, you know, essentially, it's almost, it, it's vaguely like the way that people would have adored relics in the past, you know, in the sense that here is something from the battle. Here is Nelson, but here also are members of that crew who were there at that moment, um, trying to kind of build that connection between uh, a Britain and also a London, which is quite separate and quite distant from this, with the individual who kind of rests at the centre of it. But I think what's really interesting at the end is that when it comes to that moment when Nelson is about to be lowered into the crypt and the idea that you know, his coffin should be accompanied by the standard, we have this oft-repeated story of the, the Victory's crew members kind of taking scraps of the, the standard for souvenirs, souvenirs to remember the individual by. And even though this is, a, I guess, a transgression of that kind of very traditional order of the funeral, there's a sense that these individuals, who the public revere so much, have once again tried to, to put themselves closer, have kind of showed the, the extent of their, their love for their, their admiral um, by essentially behaving as they felt appropriate, you know, and I think it's, 
it's interesting because Nelson's funeral is is a grand occasion and we have so many different readings of it depending on kind of who you you know who you read um what accounts you read um I think at the centre is really an attempt to create some way of remembering the individual, but also purposing that individual to the needs of both state and city um, and all those different interest groups who kind of get wrapped up in the organisation and execution of such a thing. And I suppose, if anything, by the end of it, we're kind of separate from Nelson. You know, we're looking at lots of different people trying to kind of exert their authority on a funeral display. Um, and at the heart of it is this, you know, this this figure who's so revered, um, and I guess whose whose story is then being used by so many different people to kind of promote their their sense of loyalty and patriotism. It's um, on one hand, it's an incredible achievement of logistics and administration, mm. the scale of what they managed to achieve. And I was thinking this when I was watching the Queen's funeral. And, I, you know, I was a bit worried about institutional memory because there weren't really many people alive mm. who were working who knew how to do a, um, a royal funeral or had, you know, had any kind of experience of how to do it. That must have been the case with Nelson. Or were they kind of harking back to a big, bigger state funeral of a previous naval legend? So... It's the logistics are, are definitely fascinating. I, I, I think it's one of my favourite things about kind of studying funerals is the, the 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 stuff you don't see that makes the stuff that you see happen. Mm. Um, and it is interesting when we have those those moments when various different people are trying to plan Nelson's funeral. Um, you know, you have the College of Arms. Now, the College of Arms have been organising elite funeral ceremony for centuries um, and they are the the kind of the holders of knowledge on what is appropriate when things should happen who should be involved but because these funerals aren't particularly common it does afford a little gray area for individuals to add elements that they might feel are um, maybe more relevant to contemporary situations and I think that very tiny level of flexibility um, gives the people organising Nelson's funeral an opportunity to add those elements which might not have been part of a more traditional heraldic yeah. funeral display. Um, I think certainly we, we see examples of that when um, when it comes to things like the the procession down the Thames. You know, there's a sense that, you know, Isaac Hurd, who's who's planning this funeral as the Galata King at Arms, um, wants a, a spectacular procession down the Thames, wants a way to kind of you know, put Nelson before the people. And so this giant kind of two-mile-long flotilla of vessels becomes um, a really interesting part of Nelson's funeral, but a way that also kind of, a, I suppose, allows them to connect Greenwich with all of its you know heavy naval connotations and associations to the pensioners with the core of the city, you know, the Admiralty and then going through into the city itself. But the city becomes a problem as well, because when, from a logistical perspective, if you're travelling from Whitehall to St Paul's, um, and it's it's worth remembering that Nelson didn't firmly expect to be buried at St Paul's. You know, he, he makes this comment before about, um, you know, about Westminster Abbey being kind of the destination should he die. Um, and then St Paul's obviously is his become by that by this stage is a sort of pantheon of various different heroes and heroic figures um but St Paul's requires you to go into the city of London 
And entering the city of London is is problematic because at Temple Bar, you must be greeted by the Lord Mayor of London. And obviously the Lord Mayor of London, you know, wants to be correctly recognised in the funeral procession. He wants a position of preference kind of in the in the general kind of procession. So the Lord Mayor of London starts lobbying for, for his position in the funeral. And very gradually, you know, you start to see these um, these battles between different people who kind of are the upholders of knowledge, if you like, um, arguing that precedent says that they should be involved in a particular location. Um, and it's it's interesting because, you know, when you see the eventual funeral, a bit like any funeral that's organised well, it all looks perfectly intentional and it looks very natural. You know, it has a very kind of natural flow to it. But yeah, certainly in the planning stages, um, there are those conflicts between people who have differences of opinion on what should happen, maybe where things should happen. Um, and I think, if anything, that's made slightly more interesting by the presence of the press at this time. You know, you have the press, you have newspapers who are talking about Nelson's funeral, who are talking about expectations of what should happen. Um, and some of those expectations are realised and some of them are not. Um, and that's problematic if you're a funeral organiser at this time, because, you know, if people are saying, well, that maybe Victory's crew members should pull the funeral car, that might not be what you have planned. And just how intensely will the public want this? You know, if they start to want it more, you know, what concessions might have to be made to a baying public who are really mm. enthusiastic to see a particular thing? Um, so it, it's interesting. And how could they tell? This, <laughs> how could this... they like? You have one person's perspective of like, well, I think the public want this, and then someone else says, well, I think the public want that. Mm. But the public themselves don't actually have a have a voice or a say. And it's it's that kind of, I guess it's that that desire to know to know what will happen when you do something. You know, if you. If you don't take the pull off the coffin, will there be a disturbance? How do you prevent a disturbance? Because it, there's always this kind of very tangible fear when you have large funerals um, that you know you'll have a, an enthusiastic crowd, and the crowd will will be there because they want to. And this is where it gets interesting: are they there because they want to participate? Do they want to mourn? Are they there because of their curiosity? You know, and this is something we also encounter at the at Nelson's. Um, lying in state at the Painted Hall in Greenwich. You know, there's a sense that if all these people are turning up in their in their droves, you know, are they there because curiosity has led them to be there? Are they there to make a, a mournful statement? Are they there to experience um, a sense of bereavement or mourning towards Nelson? No one can really know. And the, the brilliant thing is that when these things occur, no one really knows until it's happened. And then they don't really know either. They have their kind of intention of what they want people to do. But the reality of what people are thinking and doing is is wildly unpredictable. Um, but there does seem to be this, this lingering fear that if you allow, a, and to use the 18th century's word and not my own, a mob of people um, to spectate a funeral, you, know, you, you can never be sure that they won't do unpredictable things that might somehow endanger this kind of respectable display that you're trying to create. Yeah, well, it's fascinating stuff. Dan, thank you very much indeed for sharing with us all these great ideas. Um, I'm not sure I'll ever think about uh, Nelson's funeral the same way again. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you all so much for listening. Now, do please go back through our back catalogue to check out our numerous other episodes on Nelson, HMS Victory and the Battle of Trafalgar. Also, please find our YouTube channel because on that you will discover that we've used AI to turn a plaster mask of Nelson taken during his life not after death as was normal, and we've sort of reversed the process, making Nelson come alive from the mask. There are tons of other videos for you to watch there too. Please remember that the podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. In particular, the Lloyd's Register Foundation are in the midst of publishing the 2023 season of Maritime Innovation in Miniature, filming the world's best ship models with the latest camera equipment. And extraordinary it is too. This year we filmed at the Swedish National Maritime Museum, the London Science Museum, the International Maritime Organisation and Discovery Museum in Newcastle. Not only are there extraordinary films of the models to watch but also great behind the scenes films the podcast also comes from the society for nautical research so please go to snr.org.uk and join up it's a brilliant way of learning about the world's maritime past from the very best in the business and of course it supports the podcast it's a great way of meeting people and there's no excuse not to join Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.